Chapter 14 of The Secret of Lonesome Cove by Samuel Hopkins Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter 14 The Lone Fisherman. Trout are a tradition rather than a prospect in Sundayman's Creek. Some, indeed, consider them a myth. Hope springs eternal in the human breast, however and a fisherman, duly equipped, might have been observed testing the upper reaches of the stream on the morning of July 10th. Although his rod and tackle were of the best, his apparel was rough, not to say scrubby. An old slouch hat was drawn down over his forehead, and staring blue glasses sheltered his eyes against the sun, which was sufficiently obscured, for most tastes, by a blanket of gray cloud, promising rain. Under arching willow and by promising rock, his brown hackle flickered temptingly, placed by an expert hand. But except for one sunfish who had exhibited suicidal curiosity, there was none to admire his proficiency. One individual, indeed, had witnessed it, but without admiration, an urchin angling under a bridge for bullheads. "'What are you getting with that rig?' he had inquired with the cynicism of the professional. "'Oh, some snags and an occasional branch, and now and then a milkweed,' returned the angler amiably. "'Well, you can't fish below the next bend,' the urchin informed him. "'Them folks that bought Hog's Haven has wire-fenced off the creek.' "'I had just as leaf get tangled in a wire-fence as any other kind.' replied the angler with cheery pessimism, whipping his fly into a shaded spot where a trout would surely have been lurking if the entire Salmo family hadn't departed for the happy fishing grounds several generations back, in consequence of the pernicious activities displayed by an acquisitive sportsman with an outfit of dynamite and sticks. "'Suit yourself,' retorted the boy. "'You won't get nothing anyhow.' The rumble of a vehicle distracted his attention, and he looked up to observe with curiosity a carriage full of strangers pass across the bridge. The strangers were all in black. The angler had looked up, too, but immediately looked away again and turned to continue his hopeful progress toward the bend. Not until he had rounded the curve did he pause for rest. Beyond sight of the youthful Isaac Walton, he waded out upon the bank, produced a glass, and applied it to his eyes, turning it upon the willow grove on the borders of the Blair estate. The briefest of surveys satisfied him, and he resumed his fishing and his waiting. He was waiting for the funeral service of Wilfred Blair. Notices in the Boston and New York papers had formally designated the burial as private, that invaluable aide, lawyer Adam Bain, who seemed to have his fingers on the pulse of all the county's activities, had informed Kent that telegraphic summons had gone out to a few near relatives, and that the relatives, together with a clergyman, were expected that morning. That is why Chester Kent, a famous master of the art of fly-fishing, was whipping a dead stream. For a patient hour longer his questing flies explored unresponsive nooks and corners. 
At the end of that time he sighted a figure coming from Hedgerow House and dodged into a covert of sumac. The glass brought out clearly the features of Alexander Blair, set, stern, and pale. Blair walked swiftly to the willow thicket where lay Captain Hogg and his unnamed victims, looked down into the raw, fresh excavation, and turned away. Another man, issuing from the house, joined him. From his gestures Alexander Blair seemed to be explaining and directing. Finally both returned to the house. "'Handling the whole business himself,' commented Kent. "'I like his courage, anyway.' Half an hour afterward the little funeral procession moved from the house. There was no hearse. Six men carried the coffin. They were all strangers to Kent, and their clothes gave obvious testimony of city origin. Half a dozen other men, and three women, heavily veiled, followed. Kent thrust his glass into his pocket and lifted his rod again. By the time the clergyman had begun the service, Kent was close to the obstructing fence. He could hear the faint, solemn murmur of the words. Then came the lowering of the casket. The onlooker marked the black and silver sumptuousness of it, and thought of the rough hemlock box that enclosed the anonymous body in Annalaka churchyard. And, as his fly met the water, he smiled a little grim, wry smile. It was over soon. The black-clad group drifted away. One member paused to glance with curiosity at the roughly clad angler making his way upstream. For Kent judged it wise to absent himself now, foreseeing the advent of one keener-eyed than the mourners, whose scrutiny he did not desire to tempt. Shortly Gansett Jim came to the grave. Hastily and carelessly he pitched in the earth, tramped it down, and returned. Carriages rolled to the door of Hedgerow House and rolled away again, carrying the mourners to their train. Not until then did Kent snug up his tackle and take the road. No sooner had he reached the hotel and changed into dry clothes than he made haste to the nook and thus addressed Sedgwick. "'Now I'm your man for that tennis match.' "'Kent, I don't like your looks.' observed his friend, remarking the scientist's troubled eyes. "'Don't you? Where are the implements of warfare?' "'Here they are,' said the other, producing rackets and balls. "'You look to me done up.' "'Well, the great game is always something of a gamble, and being usually played for higher stakes than money is likely to get on one's nerves.' "'The great game?' repeated Sedgwick inquiringly, giving the words Kent's own emphasis. "'Yes, the greatest of all games. You know the Kipling verse, don't you?' "'Go stalk the red deer or the heather. Ride, follow the fox if you can, but for pleasure and profit together afford me the hunting of man.' "'So we're man-hunting then tonight?' said the artist quickly. Far from it, replied Kent, with fervency. Let's drop the subject for the time being, won't you? 
I've had a morning none too pleasant to look back on, and I've got an evening coming none too pleasant to look forward to. Therefore, I shall probably give you the licking of your life on the tennis court. As to the evening, began Sedgwick, while I'm... Frank, cried Kent, there's a query trying to dislodge itself from your mind and get put into words. Don't let it. Why? Because at one single question from you, I'll either bat you over the head with this racket or burst into sobs. It's a toss-up, which. He threw the implement in the air. Rough or smooth, he called. Kent played as he worked, with concentration and tenacity, backing up technical skill. Against his dogged attack, Sedgwick's characteristically more brilliant game was unavailing, though the contest was not so uneven but that both were sweating hard as, at the conclusion of the third set, they sought a breathing space on the terraced bank back of the court. "'That's certainly a good nerve sedative,' said the artist, breathing hard, "'and not such rotten tennis for two aged relics of better days like ourselves.' "'Not so bad by any means,' agreed his opponent cheerfully. If you had stuck to lobbing, I think you'd have had me in the second set. Wonder how our spectator enjoyed it, he added, lowering his voice. What spectator? There's no one here but ourselves. Oh, I think there is. Don't be abrupt about it, but just take a look at that lilac copse on the crest of the hill. Can't see anyone there, said Sedgwick. No more can I. Then what makes you think there's anyone? The traditional little bird told me. Meaning specifically? Literally what I say. There's the bird on that young willow. You can see for yourself it's trying to impart some information. I see a grasshopper sparrow in a state of some nervousness. But grasshopper sparrows are always fidgety. This particular one has reason to be. She has a nest in that lilac patch. A few minutes ago she went toward it with a worm in her beak, hastily dropped the worm, and came out in a great state of mind. Hence I judge there is some intruder near her home. Any guess who it is? Why, it might be Gansett Jim, replied Kent in a louder voice though it's rather stupid of him to pick out a bird-inhabited bush as a hiding-place. The lilac bush shook a little, and Gansett Jim came forth. "'He went to Carr's Junction,' said the half-breed curtly. "'You found his trail?' asked Kent. The other nodded. "'This morning,' he said. "'Find anything else?' "'No.' I kill him if I get him. He turned and vanished over the rise of ground back of the court. Now what does that mean? demanded Sedgwick in amazement. That is Gansett Jim's apology for suspecting you, explained Kent. He is our ally now, and this is his first information. What a marvelous thing the bulldog strain in a race is. 
nobody but an Indian would have kept to an almost hopeless trail as he has done. "'The trail of the real murderer?' cried Sedgwick. Kent shook his head. "'You're still obsessed with dubious evidence,' he remarked. "'Let me see your timetable.' Having studied the schedules that the artist produced for him, he nodded consideringly. "'Boston it is, then,' he said. "'As I thought. "'Sedgwick, I'm off for two or three days of travel, "'if we get through this night without disaster.'" End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline